book of Haggai, page 1398. We're going to read from the first chapter in just a couple of moments. Um, let's pray, shall we? Holy Spirit, we, we want to humble ourselves before you right now and say, Lord, that without your words, we don't know where to go, Lord. Our lives don't have, um, they don't have direction, they don't have purpose, and they don't have meaning. But when you speak, Lord, when we understand your ways and your will through the Bible, when we experience, Lord, the Father's touch, when we have come to know you through Jesus and his powerful death for us, Lord, our lives feel like they take on, Lord, a, a whole new sense of being and of reality. And Lord, every time we open up the word together, Lord, we want you to do surgery on our hearts in the way that Lord, you, you do as a loving father to us who cares about our well-being. And living God, I pray that this living and active word would begin to just affect change in us, Lord, permanent change. Um, that you make us disciples of your Son. That you transform us from the inside. Give us the mind of Christ. Understand your ways, your will, your passion. Understand your purposes in the world. And to offer our lives to you afresh, Lord. To say we're living sacrifices. Lord, I sometimes wonder what you want with us. With me. But then I remember, Lord, that it says that you loved us before we were even born. I remember, Lord, that it's your desire and passion that you poured out your love in giving your son on the cross for us. You proved it, Lord. We can never doubt your desire for us because of Jesus. And so, Lord, I ask you, Lord, come and work in our hearts now. Give us faith, Lord, to listen to you. And to respond with a willing spirit. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Haggai. Um, why are we looking at this? I don't think you can really appreciate a lot of the Old Testament books unless you realize what God is doing in history is one long storyline. And that often there are patterns in the Old Testament that re- repeat themselves in the time we live in now. And uh, when we begin to appreciate these patterns, these, the resonances, these um, pictures in the Old Testament, a lot of what, although this book is written into a very specific historical moment, in fact, you can trace it right down to a few months from August 29th, uh, 520 BC, right through to, I think it's December 18th. 520 BC. So it's got a very, very specific purpose in mind within a very narrow time frame in history. The things it says are timeless. And uh, some of its phrasing, as you read it, will probably be familiar to you um, if you're a Christian, been a Christian for any time. Some of the stuff in this book. And here's the, the one thing you have, to, uh, you have to grasp or else none of this makes sense. It's that God's purpose and mission on earth is that after... He made, created the planet, inhabited the planet, and made the Garden of Eden like a temple with Adam and Eve as the priest and priestess of that temple. What sin brought was the destruction of that temple. And all through the Bible, we see the succession of God's presence invading earth in new ways through his people. It begins with them, the, the people of God building a tabernacle 
in the wilderness and then them building a temple, a stone temple in Jerusalem. And that's kind of where we're at in this book. And then as you trace it through to the New Testament, you see Jesus as the presence manifest, God in human flesh, the one who is the temple himself in his own body. And then when he goes and ascends to heaven, he says that the church, not the buildings, there were no buildings when Jesus spoke about the church. He meant the people, they are the temple of the living God. The New Testament speaks about you, if you're a believer, if you're part of God's church, as a living stone. And so you can imagine that every time somebody becomes part of God's church, it's like the stone is set in place, the mortar is there, and you are for all time part of mediating God's presence to this planet. You become a channel of God's presence and power to the earth. So when you ask, well, what is... What does it mean to be a Christian in the 21st century? It means pretty much a very similar thing to what it meant to be a Jew in the 5th century BC. That your greatest passion is the desire to see God known in the earth through his presence. We're here in London. We started a new church in the city because... What London needs more than anything is to encounter and experience the power of the living God to change lives. They need to experience him in his people, in the church. And so a lot of what it says here about God's mission then is exactly the same as it is now. It just looks a little bit different on the outside. And with that in mind, I want us just to read the first 11 verses, and then we're going to um, try and explain a little bit more what I'm talking about here. It says this, In the second year of Darius the king. So he's king of Persia, not of Israel, king of Persia, the empire that's ruling over Israel. In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. He's a, um, in the line of Jesus, uh, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So God's temple had been smashed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, about 63 years earlier. And it hadn't been rebuilt. It had been pillaged and ruined. And it was one of the most magnificent buildings the world's ever known. But it hadn't been rebuilt at this point. And God is reminding them, he says, these people, these Israelites, they say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you, when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, 
And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. I want to help you to see some of the resonances before we get into some of the meaning of this passage. And I, I think there are probably there's a few ways you can look at it. Here's one, is the, the kind of historical parallels between what was going on then and actually the experience of what it is to be a Christian in the 21st century church here in London or in the Western world. So for them, they were, they're, they're people who'd been in captivity. They'd gone, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel, he, he brought the Israelites out of their nation and brought them into Babylon. And they'd been living almost 70 years in Babylon. And it wasn't until a Persian um, emperor called Cyrus arose that he decided, okay, these guys can go back home. And they'd gone home a number of years earlier. Uh, I think it was about 13 or 14 years earlier. And they, at, at that point, their land was completely trashed. You know, their farms were lying waste. Their houses were crumbling. Uh, they, were, you know, they were basically refugees returning back to a destroyed land. You imagine what it would be like today if you were from Syria, if you were to go home, and go back to somewhere like Aleppo and try and rebuild your life. How depressing that might be, how difficult that might be. And uh, just a very few of them were old enough to remember what the land had looked like before all this. How beautiful. You've seen the photos, right, of Damascus before... All this mess has been taking place and how beautiful it was with the palm trees and the stone buildings and the, the ar- archaeology that goes back millennia. And now look at it. And it's the same for them. Some of them were old enough, the gray-haired people, to remember how beautiful the land had been. And now look at it. And they're struggling to make ends meet. They're struggling to feel like, um, as the people of God, that they have any dignity in a world that's surrounded by wealth, and look at them, they are their laughing stock. Their faith is kind of, um, you know, who would have confidence in the God they believe in? And then you think about, well, the situation of the church for us in the 21st century. If you've read any history of the British Isles, you know something of the extraordinary power of God through Christians and churches, movements of God in history. I've talked about some of these things before in the times of revival and, when, and the, the impact that uh, Christians have had on society to bring about good and transformation, to be salt and light, to, to, to sow the seeds and lay the foundations for a just society, for the benefits that we enjoy and now take for granted, for the freedoms that are, are being hard won. And now you look at the state of the church today and you think, you know, it's actually a little bit embarrassing, isn't it, just to identify as a Christian these days? Because, you know, you go down the street these days and what were church buildings are now um, clubs or flats, usually flats these days, aren't they, renovated? You know, well, they're kind of a, a testimony to what Christianity used to be. And uh, it's hard to find the glory, the beauty. So there's this kind of historical resonance of a people who are kind of afraid, surrounded, with a need to rebuild, but really in the, the glory days seem to be in the past. Then there's a kind of a psychological resonance as well. You know, these people were basically quite fearful. They were still a conquered people. They were still surrounded by hostile um, foes. 
And uh, they were also kind of seduced by the wealth that they'd seen in Babylon. You know, they, these guys had, had lived in the Garden City. They'd lived in one of the most beautiful places on the planet at the time. And then coming back to all this mess, you know, wouldn't you just think, well, part of you actually left your heart in Babylon. <laughs> you know, the, as the psalm goes, you know, as we sat down by the rivers of Babylon and sang songs, we remembered Zion, but now they're back in Zion. They're probably singing songs about Babylon. They want to go back home. <laughs> and they're thinking it was better for us there. And actually, you know, when I think about the faith of a lot of Christians and the state of a lot of churches, I see a lot of kind of parallels here. You know, I think some of our most courageous days as the church seem to have been in the past, don't they? Just thinking about this island, just thinking about the state of Christianity here in this country, most of our heroes have been dead at least a century. You know, people talk about how amazing the impact of Christianity has been from Britain, but the names they cite died in the 1800s and earlier. And very few of them have been alive even in the last 50 years. The great missionary movements that started in this country, that impacted the whole world. You know, how many of you know people from, from here with that kind of courage, with that kind of you know, dedication, radical commitment to the cause of God, fearless faith, it just, just doesn't seem to be the temperature, the atmosphere of British Christianity these days, does it? That we are going about seeing the world come to know Jesus and the grace of God that we found in Christ. I think we, we're kind of feeling like we're doing well if we just manage to hang on to what we have. And there's always, you know, just as these Israelites were kind of being seduced by what they remembered about Babylon, I look at, you know, a lot of, I look at my own heart. And you look at the church and you think, often it feels like there's not much of a difference, is there? In terms of our way of life and the things we value and the things we treasure when we compare ourselves with the world around us. Which of course is a massive contrast to what it looks like in times when God's people are on fire with passion for his spirit and want to see revival. You You look at the New Testament These guys came, they laid all their possessions at the feet of the apostles so that no one in the church would have any need. They didn't, they went in the grip of possessions and of money and of of lifestyle. And then you think, well, what about 21st century Christians in London? What about us here in this nation? And often you feel, it doesn't seem to me to be the case that we have that same hunger to see God made famous. The historical setting, the psychological setting But also, here's another thing. The promises that they lived with were much like ours. They lived with kind of prophetic words that they'd heard from guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, of a renewed glory, of the temple being rebuilt at some point in the future, and not just being a blessing to them, but of all the nations starting to stream in to Jerusalem. If you ever read the last chapters of the book of Isaiah, it talks about the kings of Tyre and Sidon bringing all their treasures into Jerusalem. And it's language that's meant to capture this idea that at some point, the God of Israel, the living God, is going to be so admired 
so much the object of desire in the world that people from every nation will want to stream into his temple and be part of his family. They lived with that sense of maybe one day, and actually, if you know anything of New Testament prophecy and of what it means to be a Christian, we also live with the same expectation. We live with that same longing. God, wouldn't you glorify yourself in this world? Wouldn't we, can't we see a day when British people no longer see you as someone to mock, but as a source of life? As Haggai speaks to them, He has to first of all come in with something of the negatives of what was going wrong in their mindset. And certainly I found this very convicting. And I want to deal with it just in terms of the negatives and then we're going to turn to the positives. And first of all, ask this question. What went wrong? What went wrong? They'd started building on the, rebuilding the temple, a kind of a small effort when they'd returned less than 20 years earlier And the the work had ground to a halt. What had gone wrong? Three things that that jump out to me as being kind of the root problems in their heart here. The first is delay. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So every time they walk past the ruins of the temple, that's the kind of thing they say to, her, to each other in the street. They say, it's not yet time to rebuild the house. Every time that they were renovating their homes, they were saying, it's not yet time to go and do the work on the temple. And so they'd gotten into this habit of delay, of procrastination. Now, I want us to think about this for a minute, because I know we're called to obey God in all kinds of ways, right? And uh, timing is not always an easy thing. I think there are things that it's wrong to act on immediately. And we see this in the Bible. Like Moses, when he knew he was, he knew in his heart, I think prophetically, that he was meant to be a deliverer of Israel. But if you know the story of Moses, he acted preemptively when he was 40 years old, and it led to him being uh, sort of run out of Egypt for 40 years to go and be a shepherd in the wilderness. He acted too soon, and he had to come back. 40 years later, as the deliverers, the, the guy who would lead them in the Exodus. Even Jesus knows, while he carries a sense of burden, a sense of call in his, his, in his ministry, in his mission, there are moments in the Gospels when he's saying, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. And so, of course, always in this matter of obedience and following the call of God, when you think about particularly your personal sense of mission and calling and what you want to do for God, sometimes there is a timing aspect and you're not always meant to act straight away. But it seems to me nine times out of ten, when we're delaying obedience to God, it's not for God-honoring reasons. It's because we, we just have a, a tendency towards procrastination, right? And so what this delay said about them and their attitude to God was very important. It said on the one hand that they didn't think that God's command to rebuild the temple was important enough to inconvenience them or set them out of their way or to become a priority. And it said, on the other hand, that they felt that their personal ambitions and mission, which was to you know, 
renovate their farms, their houses, build prosperous lives. They were more important than what God had called them to. So delay became a kind of a lens through which you can look at the temperature of their spirituality. They were putting things off, but their putting things off was a, way, was a sign that their, their hearts were not for God. And so I want to ask you, do, do you put off obedience to Jesus? You're the kind of person who's saying, I will, but I'll do it later. Whether it's just in terms of, whether it's in terms of the things you know you feel God's called you to do, or whether it's just in terms of stuff every Christian's called into to be a disciple of Jesus, to be someone who serves him, serves his body, someone who, who gives sacrificially from the resources God's given you. Someone who slays sin in your life so that you can, you can live for God. Someone who's, who lives a devoted prayer life because you know that God's will is mediated through our prayers. Are you the kind of person who says, yeah, I, one day I want, to, I want to do that stuff, but I imagine I'll do it like then, maybe when I'm in my 30s or in my 40s. At the moment, you know, not now. 50s, 60s, for those of you who are already 30s, 40s, whatever, let's just keep stretching it up, shall we? We all have this tendency towards simple procrastination, and this is the first thing God's calling out is delay. Why, why aren't you doing this already? Why aren't you doing this yesterday? Here's the second sort of, the second aspect of what had gone wrong in their hearts, and I think it was fear. You know, if you were... If you were the head of a household, I think that your priorities might have been sounded totally reasonable. Um, you know, I need to feed my kids. I need to clothe my kids. I need to see this house become a warm and comfortable environment where I can have more kids. A lot of it was based around kids in those days. <laughs> and uh, I, need to, I need to be a provider. A lot of it would have sounded totally reasonable the decisions that they, were go- that they were making because they were struggling to make ends meet. And so the logic was, I need to keep investing in my, in my farm, in my house, until I've got m- my feet on solid ground, until my life is kind of sorted out. And then I can think about the temple. And obviously, on the surface of things, it sounds really completely rational and reasonable. But then you start to think, well, what, what was the reason behind the reason? Why was it that these guys were making the decision not to get involved with the rebuilding of the temple? And the answer is fear. A lack of trust in God, that God is their provider, that he would supply not only for the temple, but also for themselves and their own households. I I don't find any of this surprising that these guys didn't have that kind of faith and grit and, and conviction. We've got to trust God. We've got to put him first, and then we can tend to our own allotments. I don't find it surprising because these guys were people who, you know, in one sense, they'd never seen the power of God like previous generations had. They'd grown up in Babylon. The mindset of the Babylonians was, had seeped into them. And although they'd read the stories of the way God had dealt with previous generations, it seems to me that like, they didn't have a kind of first-hand radical faith in God's power to supply everything they need. And so I want to 
ask you, when you think about your obedience to God, whether it's in terms of giving, whether it's in terms of serving, whether it's in terms of working towards God's purposes in the world, and the sacrifice of time and energy and devotion, would you say that you're acting in such a way that you say, God goes first and I trust him for everything else in my life? Or would you say that at, at core, there's a kind of a lack of trust in God and a desire to control your circumstances, control your life? They had, there was delay, there was fear. Here's a third one. There was this kind of self-love or selfishness that had creeped into their way of thinking. Now remember, what's the first commandment? It is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart soul, mind, and strength. So what's the enemy to fulfilling that? It's loving some other God. And usually it seems to me the most powerful God that takes the place of the living God in our hearts is the God of self. Self Self-gratification, selfish desire. And this had begun to show itself in these people in a couple of ways. You look at, these, look at verses 3 and 4. It says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? It showed itself, first thing, what they were not doing. They were not giving to the restoration of the temple. The Bible called them to be the kind of people who give from the first fruits of their land. So let's say you grow, uh, for a living, you grow grapes to make wine. And you go out and harvest your grapes, whatever time of year you harvest grapes. (laughs) And as you gather in the grapes into your baskets and pull them in the house, what the Bible had told the Israelites on a number of occasions, but here's one in in Exodus 23, it says, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. So as you look at your grapes, some of them will look a little bit overripe. You should, have plucked the, you should have picked them last week. And some of them are a bit brown. Some of them maybe have a little bit of fungi on them. And then there's the beautiful, shiny, perfect, ripe ones. And he says, you're meant to go through your grapes and say, so I'm going to take those, the best ones. I'm going to take a portion of them, maybe a tenth or whatever it was, and bring them to the temple. And then all these not so good ones, I'm going to turn into wine and sell the wine. And uh, maybe I won't make the best wine possible, but I want God to be honored. So they were meant to bring their first fruits into the temple. Then also in the New Testament, Paul says something very similar to, um, to the Christians. He's, trying to, he's about to visit Corinth, and he wants the Corinthian Christians to gather uh, enough of a gift to be able to give to um, another church. And he says to them, He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So he's saying, when you're paid week by week by your masters, maybe your laborers on on the farm, maybe your household servants, and you get a small wage, he says, you're given 10 coins. And he says, on the first day, before you've spent any of it, before you've met any of your needs, he says, grab some of that money and put it aside in a box and don't touch it. First fruits. What these guys were doing in the book of Haggai, though, is they were kind of, 
They were giving leftovers if they were giving anything at all. It's like, you know, it's like chewing gum and then taking it out of your mouth and giving it to someone. Hey, you want some chewing gum? Oh, here you go. I, when we were kids, um, we visited the home of a family in America, and this family were very, um, very, very, very frugal. And the way they, they showed hospitality to us was by uh, going through their fridge and opening up all the Tupperware boxes of leftovers from that week and then mix and matching uh, whatever went to a hodgepodge on the plate and then serving it to the family. And of course... You know, if things are really tight, fine. But you imagine how you feel as a guest in someone's home when there's a little bit of chewed chicken from Monday uh, and maybe, you know, some rejected spaghetti from Wednesday and it's all put on your plate together. And in a way, this is exactly what was going on in Israel at the time. Like the, the temple, they could look up the hill and see it was all a complete ruin and then their house is looking pretty fine. And these guys were, you know, they were gathering in season after season what they could from their farms. And they were, they were looking at them thinking, nah, I'm not going to bring any because I still need to feed this family. Now, you think about how Jesus spoke of generosity and sacrifice to God. Do you remember this moment in Luke's gospel? It says, Jesus looked up. And saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is kind of how God's accounting works. It's not like the way Eugene does the books for Grace London. Where if you put in £100, he has to write £100. Otherwise the government's going to put him in jail. In God's, God's way of doing things is that he, he doesn't just factor in the exact amount that you're putting into the kingdom. I'm not just talking about money, of course. I mean the sacrifice of our lives. I'm talking about everything that the New Testament calls for in terms of living for God in his kingdom. But the example Jesus used there is of money because he's literally just watching people bring their offerings. He's saying all those rich guys with their lovely lavish robes as they're walking down the street... They're opening up their pouches and dropping in coins loudly into the box. And of course, if you're working in the temple, you're like, yes, we need that stuff. And, uh, and obviously, from, from our point of view, it looks like that's brilliant. And then this lady comes along, and she's got two little coins, and she drops them in. Jesus said that was all she had to live on. And in God's accounting, the way God accounts these things, she's given more lavishly, more gener- generously. Than, than those rich guys. Now, God is putting his finger on their self-love here, isn't he? Why were they giving God just little, if anything, and just the leftovers if they gave at all? Well, because of what they were doing with their money. It says that they were... He says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? I think, as my understanding goes, paneling your house, which is to say you take wood panels and, and, and make, I don't know if they went on the outside or the inside, 
But wherever they went, they made the house seem nicer somehow. I think this was actually a custom from the Babylonians. And so these guys were, they were basically just into DIY renovations and decoration. And, um, and it kind of begins to, uh, to provoke and stir up this question in our heart, particularly around possessions, is when do, when do possessions and luxuries and comforts become excessive for a Christian? I actually find that a really difficult question to answer. You know, it's not like we go around to each other's houses and be like, check out his panels. <laughs> Jeremy just told me that yesterday they bought a fridge, an oven, and a washing machine, right? Am I right? When you go around, you can judge those guys. <laughs> He's feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So, so when does it become like a case of, you know, the luxuries we think we need are actually just becoming excessive because we, we're in a global mission, a global mission that's got endless need to, for supply and generosity and giving, whether it's in your personal time and devotion or you're giving to your church or giving to missions work across this world. How do we hold that balance? You know, is it okay to have, you know, a TV when that TV could buy this many Bibles to go to China? You know, I don't find those questions easy to answer. And, you know, I'm not going to even pretend to try and answer it for you today. Sorry to disappoint. Um, But it seems to me that part of the problem here is just the the relative condition. That's what God is saying here. He says, is it right for you? Is it right for you to dwell in paneled houses while the temple lies in ruins? You know, there were times in in the past when it would have been normal for them all to live in the equivalent of that was fashionable at the time of paneled houses. And no one would have thought anything of it because the temple was glorious and beaming and absolutely magnificent. And they'd, they'd sacrificed so much and they were continuing to give to it. And then out of the abundance, they had comfortable lives. But God is saying, look, while that thing is in a mess, why is it that you're living like this? And it seems to me that, as, with, as is always the case when it comes to godliness, it's always a matter of searching your heart. God sees the heart. He sees my heart. He sees your heart. And there's ways that you can enjoy God's world, as we're talking about in the Incarnate series, which give him glory. You know, every time Jeremy gets a cold can of Coke out of his brand new fridge... <laughs> He's going to give glory to God. You're like, my fridge. You know, these are simple pleasures that enable you to worship the living God, right? But it's always a matter of the heart. You know, if you find that you are cushioning your life, feathering your life with, you know, indulgence in terms of your time and habits and your, and your possessions and your life goals and things and... and you know, whatever it is. And God is an afterthought. That's exactly the kind of self-love that God was beginning to expose in their hearts. And we think about these sins, the delay and the fear and the self-love. It all seems to come down to one root in them. That these people had forgotten who God really is. 
They weren't living like people who believed in the living God. They didn't know him as their deliverer. They didn't really know him as their provider. They didn't know him as their protection. They didn't know him as the, the worthy object of their whole lives and beings, as the one they should bow down to. Because it's reflected. It's reflected in how they're not doing anything to work for the rebuilding of his temple. They don't trust him. And they don't crave his presence. You know, having the temple restored and renewed was about having the presence of God at the center of Israelite life. And these guys are happy to get along with their lives yet another year and let the years tick by without putting the worship of God first. And I think about this and I think it, it just seems to me to describe so much of what passes as Christianity in in our context these days. You know, in a couple of ways, that in some ways, it, on the, practically speaking, to all intents and purposes, the lives of Christians look like, look atheistic. In terms of functional way of life and interests and joys and pleasures and, 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 and purpose and goals and mission in life, you wouldn't know, looking from the outside, that God comes first. There isn't that kind of supernatural aspect. And also, in this way, that for so many people, the Christian life is a second-hand faith. You know, I, I think about these Israelites, and I think probably part of the root of this is that they had never really experienced or encountered the power of the living God for themselves. So they had no hunger to restore worship to the center of their lives, because they didn't know what they would gain from that. His presence wasn't everything in the way that you know, it would have been for David when he said in Psalm 27 that, that there's one thing I desire of the Lord, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That wasn't their overriding, zealous, passionate desire. One thing I desire is to have my house paneled like my neighbor's. They had this kind of second-hand faith. It was a kind of a practical atheism. That's what had gone wrong. Now I want us just to... Whoa! Okay. <laughs> wow. Can I do this in five minutes? What did God want, first of all? He, well, let me tell you all three. Think, act, and expect. He wanted them to think about their situation. Now therefore, it says in verse 5, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says, stop and think. Think about this. Look at this situation. The easiest thing in life to do is to keep moving forward unthinkingly without ever stopping and thinking about your life, your lifestyle, your priorities, the things you're doing. So much of what we do, actually we do unconsciously because it's just normal. Everyone does this stuff and we never even question it. And God somehow wants them to start seeing into their own blind spots. 
incredibly difficult thing to do because of the nature of a blind spot is that you cannot see it. And he wants them to step out, as it were, and look at their lives from the outside, objectively, from the perspective of God. And this is what the Bible is here to do. We have a way of thinking that's impressed upon us by the world around us. The Bible is meant to give us a lens through which we can step out of our our world and look at it with God's eyes. And that's what the Word of God does to you. And that's what God wanted to do for them. He wanted to step out and look back on their situation and consider, what would you see if you looked at yourselves with my eyes? Now, this is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's much easier to look at other people and other cultures with the eyes of God than our own. So we look around the world and we think, you look at the situation of the church in in Africa and you think, they're so in the grip of the prosperity gospel. And, and, you know, we're we're above that, of course, even though we're so much more prosperous. (laughs) You know? We, we, look at, we look at parts of the world where you know, there's, there's syncretism and witchcraft seems to have gotten into the church, where Christians, because of their culture, are more, are more inherently violent than us nice British people. Or there's, you know, we have this Anglo-Saxon work ethic, this Calvinistic way of working, and we look at some cultures and think, those guys are just lazy. You know, siesta, seriously, every day? <laughs> or like there's corruption... He said, that's not God's way. God would not allow siestas or this corruption in society. And then you, you think, well, what does God want them to do? He wants them to look at themselves. So what would we see if we looked at our, ourselves and think, how do, how do we appear in terms of our faith to, to a biblical lens, a biblical worldview? And it seems to me, aren't we, don't we have these problems like materialism? You know, profound love of things. Prayerlessness. Have you ever prayed with an African auntie? It puts you to shame. I tell you, it makes you think like you've never prayed in your life at all. A secular mindset. We, you know, what that shows is that we, we don't believe in God the way we should. We don't pray like they pray in the Bible. God wants them to see their blind spots and think, consider your ways, he says, and so, you know, for me to ask you the question is this. What would change about your life right now if you were to live as though God is real and take him at his word? What would change about your habits? What would change about your decisions? Allow the Holy Spirit to put his finger on at least one thing in your heart, even as I ask that question. Think, he says, consider your ways. As part of that, they were meant to see the absolute failure of their choices up to now because God is saying to them, look at your situation. You're chasing after wealth, but you seem to be poorer as a result. It says you so much harvested little eat, but you never have enough, and so on and so on. It goes on, tells them a little bit later on. He says, um, why? Verse 9. Because of my house that lies in ruins. While you each busy yourself with your own house. He says, therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And he says, God's brought a drought upon everything. You see, this was the irony of their situation. The more they ran away from God in the pursuit of a secular way of life, the less they found it delivered. And you know, if you were, again, if you were head of a household and you're thinking, I didn't give to the temple last year and we still didn't have enough food to make it through the year. Am I going to give this year? No way. 
You know, that would be the logical thing, wouldn't it? You think, I'm, gonna, I'm only ever going to give when I've got all my eggs in my basket and I can feed my family. That's logical if you think that the world operates by laws. If you think that the world is an impersonal place. But God wants to open up their situation and show them, hey, friends, we don't live in a mechanical universe. Sure, you maybe understand a little bit of how the rain cycles work, but don't you realize that God is involved in the rain cycles? That he wills whether it rains or not, whether you have a harvest or not? And so God had withheld this blessing from them, not to be petty, because he's like, well, my house is rubbish, so I'm going to make sure yours is as well. It wasn't like that. For God, it was a case of, and as it's always in the Bible, because of his fatherly heart towards us, he says, if you're going to walk away from me in sin, I'm not going to bless you, because then you'll think that you're doing the right thing. I'm going to hold things back so that eventually you wake up and consider your ways and wake up and realize Friends, I need to put God first. And so it brings us back to what Jesus says in the New Testament. He's talking about anxiety for the stuff of life. And he says so compellingly, so powerfully, in a way that, you know, in a verse that speaks to me constantly. He says, you, don't, you shouldn't be anxious about everything else in your life, what we shall eat, what we shall drink. Because he says, the Gentiles run after that stuff. He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God will always make sure you have enough when he is first, when he is Lord of your life, when you trust him completely, and you say, I am all in for Jesus. Think very briefly. He wanted them to act. He calls on them, and he says, go up to the hills, verse 8, and bring the wood and build the temple. That's my paraphrase. Here it is. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Almost exactly right. There you go. (laughs) Our desire to live for God is meaningless until it actually results in concrete action. I love the fact that the verbs in that verse are almost exactly mirrored by what it means to be on Jesus' mission. Go, bring, and build. Go into all the world. Bring the gospel. Build the temple, the church. This is the most important thing about why you're alive right now. He wants them to think. He wants them to act. And then he wants them to expect. Because then he goes on and says, in that same verse, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He wanted them to realize that when they reorient their life, which is what repentance is about, it's saying, God, I want to put you first now. He was going to, Pour out his pleasure upon them. You want to live under the the pleasure and the favor of the living God. It's not about living perfectly. It's about running towards the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Spirit. We're deeply imperfect people, and the devotion we offer, the gifts we offer, is never going to be enough in that sense. But God loves it. He loves it when our desire is to please him, when we act and choose and move towards him. He says, I may take pleasure in it. You know, as it happened, the temple that they were going to rebuild was never actually going to be that great compared to the one before. That doesn't mean God wasn't happy with it. He took pleasure in it. And God would supply their needs. 
And most importantly, God would renew his presence at the heart of the nation. I was remembering this verse in Acts 3 when Peter's preaching. And he just says these lines. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Turn, repent, experience God's forgiveness that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Let me ask you, how is it that you feel that God is calling you to, to surrender and to be committed to his work in this world? You know, if, you're not, if you're not a Christian, um, maybe a good deal more that you need to understand and to learn. That's what we're here for. The first step is always entering into right relationship with God in the first place. And then you experience what it means to be living a life that has a purpose that's so much bigger than you. It's not about your 70 or 80 years on this planet. It's about the millennia of what God is doing through history, which is captivating and breathtaking when you look at it. And being a part of that mission. And if you're a Christian, friend, what is it that God's calling you to? What kind of discipleship, what kind of daily obedience is he is he? Is he stirring inside of you today? There is never a better time to decide to repent and to act than right now. What what steps do you need to take? Where do you feel convicted that your life hasn't been on mission with Jesus? Let's pray together, shall we? Jesus, I thank you that in your grace and your mercy, Lord, you... Entrust so much responsibility and joyful work into our weak hands. But we get to be part, like children helping decorate the house, we get to be part of building your kingdom in this earth. Thank you, Lord, that you're the, the master builder, Lord, that you're superintending everything that's going on. But Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to take up our sword and trowel and be involved in this mission. Lord, I pray that as we work through this book of Haggai, Lord, I pray that you'll begin to to speak to us and put your finger on areas in our hearts and our minds and our lives where, Lord, we're aware that we're we're not devoted to you in the way that you call for, which is absolute devotion. Minister to us, Lord, your conviction, but then also your grace, Lord, to change, your power to change, and the beauty of what it is, Lord, to lay our lives down before you afresh. Thank you, Lord, that being involved in your mission in the world is the most exciting thing we can do with our lives. Recaptivate us with it, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.